Well, two things are apparent this morning. Uh, this happens when you only pay half of your electric bill. Um, uh, that's absolutely true. The other truth that I thought of this morning is in about an hour, I don't have to worry about it anymore. Uh, that's all your problem now. Uh, so, um, woof. <laughs> I don't really care what else goes wrong. <laughs> uh, what a great morning to be together. I don't know about you. Uh, you probably do this all the time in your life, but I've never been a part of a commissioning service like this. Maybe this is just regular for you. Uh, I, I there it is, there, oh, there it is. Now they're just messing with me. This is, uh, Eric has already said it, I love being a part here, and just, I want you to look around. I mean, look around this room. Uh, this room is not just representing three churches, it's representing tons of, I mean, many, many churches that are coming together as one body. And what I love about this morning, what's so exciting about this morning is, uh, we just, unless the Lord builds the house, uh, this is something that we see the good hand of the Lord in. I want to be involved with things that we look back and say, unless God did it, there is no way we could explain how this happened. I love the fact that my kids are here. My kids get to experience something like this in their life, to see God moving. And, and we've talked about it as our elders, and it's come up before. I don't know why we doubt sometimes that God can do these kinds of things. If God can save, listen, a wretched, worthless sinner like me, if he could save me out of the wrath I deserve and out of hell by his sacrifice, then don't I believe he can do anything that he's promised? That's, that's why we're here this morning. It was on March 25th, 2018. A young couple stood up with their family in front of their church and was commissioned to move out to a city they had never lived, to engage in an endeavor they had never done before. A few months later, others followed, leaving behind a mixture of tearful excitement and hopeful confidence. This team left friends, homes, jobs, and the security of the known, replacing that with the unknown, because they believed in something greater than their own comfort, and more fruitful, they believed there was something more fruitful than... We said, the words that we said at the time of this commissioning, we said, this is going to be hard, this is going to be uncomfortable, this is risky, and it's right. We had prayerful anticipation that God would do something amazing in the next three years, and that God's word would continue to go forth in an area it had already been for decades. As is God's nature and character, God did abundantly more than we could even ask for. That was less than two years ago that we commissioned Eric and Ashley to come out here. In less than two years, God has exceeded all of our expectations, but never exceeded what his purpose and will was. You are here this morning. Listen, you are here this morning because you have had a part of this whole story. You, you individually have been a part of, of all that's gone on here. Some of you have served here faithfully for over three decades. The Fairchilds, Kevin uh, Fairchild and his mom. Thank you, that was what I was looking for. Should have written it down. Uh, I, pretty impressive I got the Fairchilds though. Uh, you've been here faithfully for the last three or four decades. We have our beloved partners in Grace Orange, and I'll just say that uh, this whole thing would have fell apart or not even got started except for the leadership of Mike Shara. Uh, Mike Shara at Orange and the elders there who invited us into a discussion that we hadn't been invited to. And, uh, and so we're very thankful for the church at Orange and Mike's leadership, and we're very thankful for Michael and Taylor uh, who have partnered here. Again, I think all of these individual stories, if we had time to unpack them, we would see God's grace in all of that. We're very thankful for the way the church, it's not church on the way, it's the way church, uh, who, who joined this church and Justin's leadership in that, who, who helped propel this church forward. 
We're very grateful, and I want to make sure we say this, I'm very grateful for Roy Halbert, for Roy's leadership, that he served here faithfully for 15 years. Is that right? 15 years. And I will say that uh, Roy has been a man of humility, uh, one that I want to emulate because humility is not necessarily one of my strong suits. And, I, and Roy not only uh, served here faithfully, but, but helped usher in something new, which is very difficult when, it's, when your time is done in a place. We're thankful for people like the Van Velzers who moved back here uh, after escaping from Rancho Cucamonga. No, I'm just kidding. No one wants to get out of Rancho Cucamonga, but they, they were out, but, they sucked, but we were sucked back in, you know, uh, come back to Rancho Cucamonga. We're thankful for, there's other people that I've heard stories that they've actually, they've lived here, went to another church and have come back here. We're thankful for the church in Simi Valley. Thankful for the elders, leadership there. We're thankful for the people who've come out here. And like Eric said, it hasn't all been smooth. Some uh, of that team from Simi Valley has left the church and some have come back to Simi Valley. I want to also say thank you uh, in particular to Marshall Walter. Uh, Marshall, you understand, uh, has basically behind the scenes helped run this church and our church in Simi Valley. Uh, he does, he's done a yeoman's job. Uh, he's done probably more work than we'll ever know. And again, these kind of things wouldn't happen without this kind of contribution and leadership. Listen, if I missed you this morning, and your contribution, it's not intentional. We have all played a part in this story, but none of this has been about us. A single person or one church, this whole venture has played out much like every local church should play out. How a local church functions, every member playing their role for the building up of the body to the praise and glory of God and Jesus Christ. This is, this what we're seeing today, this is a vivid illustration, a vivid illustration of the beauty and unity of God's church. Now that's really important, and Eric already hit on it, but we understand this is not anybody, any one individual's church. This is God's church. Paul, when he talks about the church, he never talked about my church, he talked about God's church. It's God's flock, God's household, with Christ being the head. Because of this, and because it is God's, we simply want to be faithful to fulfill what he has called us to. So this morning, listen, is not a celebration of our ingenuity or creative planning, but simply the fact, as Eric Ori has stated, that Christ is building his church, and we get to be a part of that family. So remember, so we remember the biblical precedent in all this is that we seek the glory of God in Christ and all things. Now, what I want to do this morning is I want to give us a little biblical precedent for what we did here, and then I want to give a biblical charge to not only the elders of this church, but also to the church of Grace Rancho. At the conclusion of this service, we're going to have the elders come up and we're going to pray. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Acts and Acts 13. Acts 13 gives us precedent, not not a prescription, but rather the heart of the church. It's not a prescription. But here's what Acts 13 says. Here's what happened at this church at Antioch. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, a member of the court of Herod, the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid hands or laid their hands on them and sent them off or released them for the work that God had called them to. Now the church at Antioch was, was unique. Uh, if you know your biblical history of church development, if you know the book of Acts, you know the church at Antioch was unique. Before this, before Acts 13, persecution had come upon Jerusalem, which, after the martyrdom of Stephen, had caused believers to scatter. So the church started in Jerusalem, but now there's a scattering that went about through the known world. And some of those scattering few took up residence in Antioch, far north of Jerusalem, that was part of Syria. Up until this point, the church had been made up of Jews alone, but that was beginning to change. Peter received a vision from the Lord. You'll remember that the gospel was 
to go out to Gentiles or non-Jews. And though reluctant at first, even the church at large realized that something new was happening and the Holy Spirit was was being given to Gentiles or to non-Jews. The church at Antioch uh, then experienced some tremendous firsts. I love the study of the church at Antioch because they were the first ones to do certain things or they experienced things for the first time. You'll remember this, that uh, not only the church at Antioch saw large growth in numbers, but also in diversity as the Hellenists, or Greek non-Jews, were saved and added to the church. In other words, this was the first church outside of Jerusalem that now had a mixture of Jews and non-Jews in their church. It was in Antioch that disciples were first called Christians. They were the first church to respond to the physical needs of the church in Jerusalem who were facing famine recognizing that they were not alone in the world, but part of Christ's universal church. It was then that there were two men, Barnabas and Saul, that were sent to the church at Antioch to help train them, and this was the first place that Paul got pastoral experience. This was his internship. This was his his chance to spread his shepherding skills. Now, I'd imagine that as they sent out, they, for one year, Barnabas and Saul were there. They were ministering to this church, and after a year, you start to develop deep relationships. There would have been bonds of friendship and unity between these teachers and students, and it would have been strong, forged out of persecution and solidified through the Scripture. It was out of this diverse, faithful growing church that God did something else that was new. He called Paul and Barnabas to leave, to leave something that was going well. He didn't have them leave because there was tension. He didn't have them leave because there was, there was things going on and, and anger and, and frustration going on. Quite the opposite. He had them leave because things were going well. This was a healthy church. The church was at a place of health, and they could go on without these two. So in a context of worship and fasting and prayer, it says the Holy Spirit called them to be sent out of the church to help start other churches around the known world. This would have been hard. It would have been uncomfortable. And most likely was met with sadness But the church prayed, they laid hands on, and they released them. And this was the first of three missionary journeys that Paul would be on. And countless disciples were made, churches formed, and elders recognized as a result. Now, uh, we've, we've been working on this revitalization now for several years, and it's exciting. It's not just exciting for those who are here. When we tell the story of this church, other people are intrigued. They're excited for what God has done. They want to praise the Lord too. And, and without fail, I get this question. How would you do it? So I'm going to write a book and uh, <laughs> make some money. You know, no, like how, how did it happen? Uh, I would like to think and I would hope we, I hope really what we could point to is we simply wanted to be faithful to the pattern and the reality of what church is the way the New Testament lays it out. It seems to me that, and Eric hit on it this morning, and I'm glad he's hitting on it now. He mentioned something this morning. He said it's in the DNA. It's just part of of how we think, is we want to be ascending church. If you're here this morning, in whatever church you represent this morning, we want to build into our mindset, our, our framework of thinking about life, that we want to be ascending church. We want to be able to send out workers to the harvest. Sending is always difficult, always. And yet we want to see that, that God has called people. Haven't you experienced this in your, in your churches, is that sometimes God calls people away for jobs. We live in Southern California. I don't know if you know this, but Southern California is expensive. No? Anybody experience that? Like housing is, is on the smidge expensive side. So sometimes people get other jobs and they move other places, and yet we see that as a loss instead of seeing that as a gain, that we can actually send people that we've trained to other places to be a blessing there. We want to send pastors and missionaries and church planters and and healthy members to go to other churches. It, It should be built into our DNA. Healthy churches, listen, healthy churches should be reproducing. Just like healthy Christians, healthy disciples are healthy, not when they know more, but they're actually healthy when they help do what? Make other 
disciples. And so that's, that's really the goal. The goal of our churches is not just to grow in health, but, but sometimes we think, well, growing in health is that we're going to have more knowledge and we'll have more people and our numbers will go up. But I don't see that at all. In fact, I think there are people at the church at Antioch that were saying, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. You're, wait, what now? Why would you send our best away? Couldn't we do more with Paul and Barnabas? We, he was going to teach a class. We were going to have a small group. It was going to be awesome. And God said, no, but we've got to send out to multiply what we've experienced here. Healthy churches reproduce themselves. That's why when people ask me, how did this happen? First, we give glory to God, like we, we've already said, he's done the work. But the second is, we just simply play out the model of New Testament church as best we can. Is, is we model what 1 Thessalonians 2.8 says, Right? That for Paul, the church at Thessalonica had become so dear, he was so affectionate for them that he not only shared the gospel, but but his what? His very life. He was willing to share his very life with them. Now, when you do that, be aware and be be careful, because once you do that, it's then very difficult to leave. It's like sending your kids away to college for the first time. That's like six years away for me. I loathe that day. We understand that our mandate as a church is this. We are to make disciples, go and make disciples of whom? All nations. All nations. By nature, that means people who are different than us. People who are different and sometimes uncomfortable. We're to teach them all that Christ commanded and baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Ephesians 4 says we're to equip the saints for the work of ministry. The job of a pastoral staff of elders is to equip people in the church to do the work of ministry. And then we know, according to Luke 10, 2, that we're to pray for workers for the harvest. Because we know God's harvest is plentiful, but what is, what is needed, the one resource that is few, are the workers to go out. We've never been called to a comfortable life. We've never been called to the status quo as followers of Jesus Christ. So at the conclusion of this message, if it ever ends, at the conclusion, look, I got one shot at this and you're not going anywhere, so um, you can turn the lights out on me, you already tried, and, and I'm not going away. At the conclusion of this message, our elders from Grace See Me and the elders of Grace Rancho are going to come up. And we are going to pray specifically for the three elders that God has revealed and, and placed of leadership over Grace Rancho now, and then after that, we're going, to have, we're going to have those elders sit back down, and then I'm going to invite, I'm giving you a warning shot here, then I'm going to invite everybody who's not a part of Grace Rancho to come up, and we're going to ask the, the elders from Orange to pray for you as the church at Grace Rancho. We're going to recognize you, we're going to pray for you, and we're going to commission you. We're going to commission you to the harvest, we're going to commission you to God's field of work. In doing this, we hope that all of us, in every church represented, all of us will be strengthened, encouraged, and committed to living out the realities of God's church wherever we're planted. The reality of Revitalizing Grace Rancho, listen, the, re- the reality of this is the fact that all of our churches have been revitalized. All of our churches have been revitalized as we are once again reminded of the call God has on us. What we've been praying for is not that God would revitalize this church, but that God would revitalize all of our churches. And when when Simi Valley sent out our best, it left a void, and it meant other people had to fill that void and step into it. That's good. Well, I want to leave you. That sounds like a conclusion, but it's not. Uh, turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 4. My daughters laugh. They said, Dad, you say in conclusion a lot and you don't really mean it. Uh, It's true. You'll know. When my wife gets up and leaves, you'll know. (laughs) It's time. Read with me. We're just going to walk through the first five verses of 2 Timothy uh, chapter 4. And it says this, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing 
and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming, folks, and the time is now. The time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. Now, uh, we're going to talk about this charge that Paul gave to Timothy, and so before we get into that, we have to understand, remember who Timothy was. So let's do a brief little introduction to Timothy himself. Remember that Timothy was left in Ephesus by Paul. Ephesus was a once thriving and vibrant church, but it had come under the fire of false teachers. False teachers had infiltrated and were beginning to ship some of the faith of some there. Something that Paul actually had predicted in Acts 20. Timothy was the right man for the job. As Paul traveled on his second missionary journey, he stopped in Lystra or Lystra and met a young man named Timothy. He was well spoken of by his brothers. He had been raised by his grandma and his mom in the scriptures. His dad was either absent, passed away, or definitely not a believer. So his mom and his grandma filled in. Paul asked him to join this trip, and Timothy did so. And Timothy did so as a young man, and he gave up the normal life that a young man in Lystra would have had. He gave up family and friends and maybe a career, and he says, I will go with you, Paul, and I will serve you. He was willing to get circumcised in order to be, not be a stumbling block in front of other Jewish people they were trying to reach. And Paul referred to Timothy as my true child, my beloved child, and my beloved and faithful child. In fact, Paul would go on to say in Philippians that he had no one like Timothy. So Timothy was a man of character. Timothy is, is who Paul is giving this charge to. He was qualified to lead this church. Why is that important? Because we have great confidence in our God that the men who have been identified and revealed. Listen, the men here that are going to lead this church as elders, Mark, Kent, and Eric, no one made them elders. We didn't make them elders. They didn't read a book and said, hey, you read the book, you're qualified. They, their life has been revealed in front of you. It's, it's why we ask some of you, have what they say, have what they've said about the truth and taught them the truth, have they modeled that? The ones we grilled the most were their wives. Is your husband somebody who lives out the truth and the reality of the gospel in your home? And if the answer is no, they weren't qualified. We have great hope for these men who will not only teach the truth, but model the truth for you. Not perfectly, but consistently. So this charge that Paul is giving, listen, this charge is, giving, is being given to Timothy and by extension to the elders of Grace Rancho, but then even by extension to that, I want all of us to listen because what you're going to hear is the heart of Paul for the leadership of the church of Jesus Christ. And so we want to hear these, these charges. This is what Paul's going to explain of how a church remains healthy and vibrant, one that reproduces and perpetuates. The hope is that many more will be trained up. We're starting with three. There's more in the queue, and there should be... There, you should get to a point. You, you're going to have a good problem here. Here's the good problem you're going to come into at Grace Rancho. You're going to have too many leaders that you don't know what to do with. Praise the Lord. And that means if you have that problem, that either means God is preparing to add to your numbers, or it also means maybe you've got to send people out, or maybe just kick them out. I, look, listen, it may just be time. I live in that reality. Listen, in Simi Valley, the reason why we sent Eric, it was either Eric or me, and I didn't want to go. <laughs> but maybe someday, there'll be somebody else. And so, and so we hope that from these charges that Paul gives, he's saying this is this is how you continue to reproduce and remain vibrant and healthy. This letter was Paul's last. This is the last charge. I think it's very important to listen to people's last words, right? This is the, the height of wisdom. He's lived a life that he's ready to, to meet his Savior, and he's saying, man, this is important. Paul didn't mince words, and he didn't lose words. 
This was super important. This was a charge, a serious, simple, straightforward charge. The word charge simply means uh, somebody solemnly testifying, declaring these truths on the basis of personal knowledge. He knew Timothy, and he's tailoring this not only to the truth, but to Timothy saying, these things you need to do. You have to listen to me. And he's calling. He's not just saying, uh, I'm saying it to Timothy. I'm saying, uh, in the sight, in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, I'm saying this as well. So let's... I'm going to give you, it's going to sound bad, but there's nine commands here. We're not going to spend equal time in all nine, but in these five verses, we'll try to condense these and this charge to a few main points. The first one maybe is the most important. Here we go. The first is this. Elders of Grace Rancho, elders of Grace Orange and Grace Sini, everyone else who's members of these churches, we need to stay convinced of the truth so we can preach the word firmly and fiercely. Dr. Stephen Nichols said this, conviction costs, but compromise costs more. Conviction costs, but compromise costs much more. If you're familiar at all with the life of Charles Haddon Spurgeon, you've probably heard of the downgrade controversy Spurgeon was alive in the late 1800s. He had one of the largest churches in the Baptist Union, but he realized that things were starting to slide. Spurgeon spent the final four years of his life, the prince of preachers himself led the, spent the last four years of his life at war against the trends of early modernism, which he rightly saw as a threat to biblical Christianity. Now, if Spurgeon were alive today, he would have blogged these things, but instead he wrote these things called articles, He had to use pen and paper, pencil and paper, I don't know what he used. And he would publish these things in something called the sword and the trowel. He wanted to admonish his flock about the dangers of moving away from the historic positions of biblical Christianity. Biblical truth, Spurgeon said this, biblical truth is like the pinnacle of a steep, slippery mountain. One step away and you find yourself on the downgrade. Once a church or an individual church gets on the downgrade, momentum takes over and the slide begins. Recovery is unusual and it occurs, said Spurgeon, only when Christians get on the upline through spiritual revival. In the controversy that transpired as a result of these articles, Spurgeon actually resigned from the Baptist Union. Think about that. The prince of preachers, the largest church in the Baptist Union, had to resign because what he saw was going on in the rest of the churches. Though he had the largest church there, later after his resignation, he was subject to an official censure by the Union. Within a few years, the Baptist Union was hopelessly lost to a new theology and Spurgeon was dead. Preach the word. It's a simple command, but as simple as it is, it's as difficult as it is. The primary function of an elder is to shepherd the flock, 1 Peter 5. And the primary function of a pastor elder is to preach. Preaching is not necessarily in vogue today, (laughs) right? Like, it's not... It's not in vogue today. You know why? Because it's never been in vogue. Preaching has never been the thing that lights people's candle. I don't know. They, that, 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 that wets their whistle. I, they, it's never been the thing that gets people excited necessarily unless the Spirit has given them eyes to see and hearts and ears to listen. Paul told Timothy that a day was coming. And I love this description. Actually, I don't like this description. But a day is coming and now is People, listen to this description. See if this sounds like today. That people will be lovers of self. Lovers of money. Proud. Arrogant. Abusive. Disobedient to parents. Those are my kids. Ungrateful. Unholy. Heartless. Unappeasable. Slanderous. Without self-control. Brutal. And not loving. Not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. That's that's the world we live. 
That was the world that, that Paul lived in, the one that Timothy lived in, the one that we live in. Nothing is new under the sun. And it's fascinating that the antidote that Paul gave wasn't a gimmick, it wasn't a program, it wasn't a new technique. What he said in timelessly, he says, preach the word. And so that's the challenge. Now, here, here, let me just give you four reasons why, four reasons why preaching has to be central, because the word of God has to be central. The first is this. Preaching the word reminds us where authority and sufficiency come from. The reason why Eric preaches the way he does, and I love it. Listen, I've watched some videos of people who've given testimony from this church. And, and one thing that is, it comes very clear is almost everybody has mentioned the preaching of God's word. Most people mention Jonah. I got to get the tapes. I got to download. That's old. Tapes. <laughs> I just dated myself. I got I, I to download the podcast. Uh, on Jonah, is, is you... You've mentioned the preaching. You've mentioned the truth being taught. Not only is Scripture authoritative in all areas of life, it is also the only thing that can transform lives in your congregation. It's the only thing. We are transformed, Romans 12, 1 and 2 says, by the renewing of our minds. And the only way that our minds can be renewed is if it's transformed by the Word. So your job, the job of your elders, and by extension, your teachers and your leaders, is to connect our minds and hearts to understand God through his word, which in turn literally makes us new. Paul was clear that the way to train and equip the church for every good work was through the faithful preaching of God's word. And right before this, right, where does that come from? Where does preaching the word come from? He says it comes from this, you know it, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Second, preaching the word allows you to use your giftedness and still focus on Christ. Preaching God's word allows you to use your giftedness. I don't know if you know this, but Eric's a really gifted preacher, really gifted. Uh, he's a presence. He's a wordsmith. And I mean that in the best way. I mean, he, is, he can build pictures and, and, and explain the truth in a way that you walk away going, I got it. I get it. And so, and, and the hope is that, that Mark and Kent and others of you will continue to teach and will use the giftedness that God has given you to make the word come alive. Listen, the word and preaching and teaching God's word should never be boring. We're not trying to bore people to death. We're not just trying to let them sit there and have to work harder than they have to, but we understand what, exactly what Paul was talking about in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul says, I, I didn't rely on my gifts necessarily when I, when I came to the church. Paul said he didn't come to proclaim the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, but he decided to know nothing among them except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Use your giftedness. Get trained. Do better. I mean, have classes to teach and how to teach better. But always magnify Jesus Christ. Let this be your goal. Preach Christ. Preach the gospel. Never stop or tire of plumbing the depths of the love of God, the lavishness of his grace, the goodness of Christ in his atoning death. Third, Preach the word expositionally. Preach the word verse by verse. Keep, keep going through books of the Bible. Preach the word expositionally, which guards you from preaching your own ideas. You are a mouthpiece of God, speaking the word, not your own. You guys will need to work hard every day to understand, explain, and apply God's word to all those that you lead. Listen, uh, teaching God's word faithfully is the hard work that not a lot of people will understand. Not a lot of people understand what goes into and behind preparing to study to make sure that when we stand up here, what we're saying is God's word, not our own. It means that there's going to be lonely times and lonely hours of study, even though you're never alone. You're called to preach. This is why I'm so excited about Jonah. You're to preach the Old and the New Testament. 
Challenge your people to, understand, to deepen their understanding of God, of God and never skip hard passages. All of Scripture is God-breathed. And lift the gaze of those that you shepherd back to Christ, fixing their eyes on the author and finisher of our faith. Lastly, preach the word fiercely, or preaching the word fiercely guards against false teaching. Guards against false teaching. One of the consistent things, it's what Paul told us in Acts 20, 28. After I leave, savage wolves are going to come in. It was a promise. It's not like maybe they will come in. It's not like maybe Grace Rancho is going to have to deal with false teaching. It's, it absolutely will. And the problem with false teaching is typically false teaching doesn't announce itself. I am a false teacher, and I'm here to lead you astray. That would be very easy. Uh, we'd stick Kent on them. Uh, he'd get his bow and say, you want to get out. And Mark would run after him. Anyway, uh, that's a running joke. I don't run. Anyway, it'd be nice if false teachers announced that they were false, but they don't. It's subtle. It's always subtle. And, and false teaching always, always goes along with worldliness. And so, and so it infiltrates through the cracks. And so that's why we preach the whole counsel of God. We've seen it. Listen, I've read about it, and in my lifetime, it's starting to happen on our watch. We're looking at churches who are much more willing to compromise and capitulate to what the culture wants rather than standing first uh, firm in the truth. And, and it goes something like this, right? False teaching goes something like this. Ah, well, it's not that big of a deal. Ah, this isn't a primary issue. Hey, is this really a gospel issue? And, and subtly and slowly, like a frog in a kettle, slowly over time, pretty soon you're at a point where the gospel's gone and you wonder how we got there. You as a congregation want your pastors and elders to preach the truth, but you as a congregation have to do something like the Bereans in Acts 17. Look at me, if you're part of Grace Rancho, if you're part of Grace Orange, if you're part of Grace Simi, your job is to search the scriptures to make sure what's going on up here is consistent with the scriptures. And if it is not, you confront it. And in confrontation, if it doesn't change, then you have some other decisions to make. You're not blind in following. We have, we have a foundation of truth to follow. And so the only authority that these elders have, the only measure of, of sufficiency that they have is God's word. And so we preach it and we proclaim it. May this, listen, may this be a beacon continue in this area where God's truth is always preached and magnified. Amen? We believe it not just because it's right, but because that's what people ultimately need. Well, secondly, stay prepared. Stay prepared so you can shepherd fearlessly. Stay prepared so you can shepherd fearlessly. It says here that to preach the word, you need to be ready in season and out of season. You need to be ready at all times. That means uh, sometimes, I guess that could mean that, that sometimes preaching is in vogue and other times it's not. I, I, that may be what it means, but I really think it means that for an elder or a pastor, leader of the church, you never have an off-season. You always are prepared. Maybe other jobs, you have an off-season. If you're an accountant, after April 15th, you're like, woof, see you in like a couple months. You have an off-season. For pastors, preachers, leaders of the church, you're not off. You're never, you're never have an off-season. You're always prepared. That means that you have to discipline yourself. You have to always be studying, always be learning, always be growing, ready ready to teach. I remember when I was a young preacher, I committed to the Lord based out of 1 John. It says, perfect love casts out fear that I said, I will never say no to a teaching or preaching opportunity out of fear. We're to be ready. That means that we're nourishing our souls with God's word, whether we have to preach or teach or not. And we're going to preach out of an overflow. Second, we need to reprove and rebuke. Reprove and rebuke. That means one has to do with dealing with error, and the other one has to do with dealing with sin. One has to do with error, and those two are very combined, right? 
is, is we have to confront wrong thinking as we confront wrong living. And so those, both those things have to be true, have to be done. It means that as a church, you must talk about sin. You must talk about sin. Sin is one of those things that churches like to jettison because people don't like to hear it. I don't like to hear it. I don't like being confronted with my sin, but it's necessary. Hebrews 3, 12 to 13 says this, Take care, brothers, lest there be any, in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. We are all so prone to be deceived by sin, aren't we? We're so easily swayed. We so easily can get caught up into what sin offers us. We can easily believe the lie. Now listen, to exhort, or to, I'm sorry, to reprove and rebuke, it means that in a loving way, as you, as you lovingly tell the truth, that people are not going to like that. Why I say you have to shepherd fearlessly is you have to believe that what I'm doing for people is the best for them, out of love for them, even though sometimes what will happen as a result of that is they'll reject you. No one goes into pastoral ministry or being an elder because they want people to like, if, if you're looking for people to like you, get into a different profession. Be a lawyer or whatever. Just kidding. <laughs> Brian, no, just kidding, Brian. Brian, Brian reverse it. Anyway, reprove and rebuke. Third is we exhort. We exhort. That's the positive word, one that brings gentle correction, but also encouragement to urge strongly. I love this. I, I, love, I think what, what the picture, Paul, is it, it's this negative, you got to reprove and rebuke and exhort. There, there's some negative aspects and positive aspects. It's what 1 Thessalonians 5.14 talks about. We're to admonish idleness, so we have to admonish sin. We have to encourage the faint-hearted. We have to help the weak and be patient with all men. It means that we, that we understand what this means as a, as a leader in the church is you have to understand God's word and understand the person to deliver the right the right kind of help. I like to think about it as a hand, right? Sometimes as a hand, you have to deliver a blow that's going to hurt. That's admonishing the unruly or the idle. Sometimes somebody's just faint-hearted. They just need help. They just need somebody to come alongside them and put their arm around them and actually encourage them to keep going. And sometimes people are just weak, and you have to use your hand to undergird them and hold them up. The same hand delivers all those things. It means that we don't bring a hammer when somebody just needs a, a hug, <laughs> right? Like sometimes people just need to be encouraged. And, and so the role of, of a truth bearer doesn't mean that you just hammer on people all the time. You use that sparingly when needed. We act wisely toward people. And then he says this, it's the same thing in 1 Thessalonians 5.14. We do this with complete patience and teaching. Let your success be defined by faithfulness, and pastoring is the ultimate long game. Pastoring's like, like parenting. I got 18, I have 18 plus years, hopefully not too many past 18 in my house, but anyway, we'll, we'll take it. Uh, 26, I don't know, but, but, uh, but parenting's the long game, right? We have, we have our kids for almost two decades, and so there's, there's the daily rhythm that we want to get in, but I also want to see this for what it will be. I want to look, look in the future, and so pastoring, this is why I'm glad Eric has said he, he has no plans of leaving this place. Now, he may, but that's not the plan, because we believe that you can shepherd well over the long haul. And so elders to, are to exercise complete patience and teaching. Now, I already said this, but no matter how much you love, how well you preach, or how faithful you are, some will not like what you tell them, and they won't like you. This is, this is a bummer, but it's really a promise. It's a reality. Many will not like biblical teaching and preaching because it flies in the face of what they desire. There will always be, always be those who will say, give the people what they want. And those places will seem successful, they will sometimes burst at the seams with people, but giving people what they want 
It's rarely, I would say maybe never, what they truly need. You must enter into this preaching, pastoral ministry fearlessly, not willing to compromise or capitulate because you love people too much not to. Those who are diagnosed with a fatal disease can go to Disneyland for a day and get happy, but that doesn't help them with their disease. They can get happy for a day, but they need something far greater to help them with their greatest need. Lastly, in conclusion, close to the end, stay clear so you can lead faithfully. Paul says this in kind of a rapid-fire way, stay sober, stay sober, be serious about this ministry. This is a serious uh, endeavor. So we stay sober, sober-minded, we're disciplined, we exercise self-control, it means that we're unshaken, it means that as the waves of false teaching go on, as there's going to be days where you're going, man, the budget's really close, are we going to make it, are, are, we gonna, are people going to leave, are, are people are leaving because Southern California is so expensive, our young families are leaving, a sober-minded pastor is one who says, look, the waves are tossing all about us, but we're going to stay steady. We're going to be plodding visionaries. We're going to move forward in an upward way, but we're going to do that slowly and steady. And I'll just say this. Sober-minded means that you take life seriously, but you don't necessarily take yourselves so seriously. It's okay to laugh. It's really okay to laugh at yourself. So we, we show that too, that taking ministry seriously doesn't mean we take ourselves seriously. Second, we need to endure suffering. Life is hard. I think there's a couple different kinds of suffering. Paul, it's replete. Second Timothy, or Second Timothy, First Timothy, Paul says there's going to be suffering, suffering, persecution, all because of Christ. Suffering is the reality. The life of a pastor or even the life of a Christian is going to be hard. And sometimes it's hard because we're going to face rejection and you're going to face the kind of rejection that you pour your heart out into somebody. You're going to love that person. You're going to give your heart and soul to that person and they're going to reject Christ and reject you. That's the worst kind of pain. But not only that, is, is there's going to be various other kinds of suffering you're going to face. And I have no idea what that looks like, but God will put you through trial and you will suffer for the sake of Christ. I was fascinated by the writing on this topic by Paul David Tripp. He wrote a book called Suffering, and he experienced a kind of suffering that was physical. Here was a guy who had a bandwidth that was like always full bars, right? He was nonstop. He would mock people who needed naps. He had all kind, he, would, he would produce. He was a producer, and, and then he got sick. And he had six painful surgeries, and his energy level went from full bars down to one bar, and, and now he's facing this kind of suffering. And he wrote this. He said, during these months, I was confronted with the reality that much of what I thought was faith in Christ was actually confidence in my physical condition and pride in my ability to produce. I had always had lots of energy and was quite physically fit for my age. I never remember being tired, never required much sleep, and always was able to be prof, uh, productive. Suffering has the power to expose what you have been trusting all along. If you lose your hope when your physical body fails, maybe your hope wasn't really in your Savior at all. It was humbling to confess that what I thought was faith was actually self-reliance. God isn't a glutton for pain for us for no reason. He never wastes our suffering. But if you suffer, I will say this, when you suffer, it shows that you have to continue to be reliant on God. Two more. Work at evangelism. Work at evangelism. Do the work of evangelism. I like how Paul frames this. It's work, especially when you love your church, when you love your family. I'd rather be with our church and my family than anybody else. I have to work at evangelism. And so what Paul is reminding the church and the leadership and and you missed it. I just spit, Luke. That was for you. <laughs> what Paul is reminding the leadership of the church is, is don't get so focused on the people in your family and forget who you've been called to make disciples. You have to plan it. it you have to be a planner to, to make it happen. If you don't plan to spend time with unbelievers, it won't happen. And this is great. I don't think this evangelism is the kind of evangelism saying, I, out of duty or guilt, I need to go out and bonk somebody on the head with a track or, or say the message so I assuage my Christian guilt. 
This is saying, again, I'm going to play the long game. I want to engage in real relationships with unbelievers. I'm going, to, I'm going to have to say no to other good things to say yes to spend time with unbelievers. It was beautiful. Friday night, my wife went to a funeral for a, friend, a friend's dad, one of her coworkers' dad. And the testimony there was a, a man who went to Grace Community Church, who I have never heard of. And for the last five years, this man... Uh, had ministered to the the deceased who couldn't come to Bible studies because of health. So for five years, he simply met him in his care facility, read scripture to him, and prayed with him for five years. Faithfully, consistently, and right at the end, at the end of five years, right before death, this man, we believe, came to know Christ for the first time. That's evangelism. It's not glamorous, but that's what it is. It's not always going to take five years, but it's being consistent and faithful to present Christ, not just in the church, but out of the church. And lastly, fulfill your ministry. 2 Timothy 2, 1 through 8 kind of tells us what this is. Pass on this ministry to others. Invest in others. Entrust God's word to others. Listen, if, I, if we come back in a year and it's still you three doing all the work, that's failure. In, in another year, there should be more and more men and women who are taking up leadership positions in their, in their lane and release faithful men and women to teach and disciple out of the word of God. Embrace suffering. Keep focused like a wartime soldier. There's a battle raging, and so we're a wartime soldier. Maintain integrity, he says, like an athlete, but don't steal signs. That's... Uh, Evaluate often, celebrate what God does, and remember Jesus Christ. It is with these charges that we commission you. You as leaders, you as a church, joyfully and gladly. You are now independent. (laughs) You are independent from grace, see me, and now wholly dependent on our glorious God and the head of our church, who's Jesus Christ. We are now just willing partners with you, willing partners in the harvest of ministry, and we look forward to what God will have us do together in the future. We value your partnership, we value your input, and we value your wisdom. We hope and pray that this will not be the last commissioning service that we get to be a part of. And we desire to glorify God and magnify Jesus Christ among the nations, being poured out as a drink offering, knowing that the time of our departure will come. We want to declare with Paul one day, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Now, all of that sounds great, but we know it's, a, it's too great of a task for any of us to do, so I leave you with this, and would you pray with me just briefly as I read Ephesians 3, 20 to 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all, the, all that we ask or think according to the power at work in us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen.